Well, good morning to each of you. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We're going to continue our series in the book of Luke. And uh, we're looking at how Jesus did life uh, with other people, interactions, attitudes, spirit, words. We're looking at that and saying, okay, if he's our template for living, how did he live it? And then we can apply for ourselves. And uh, so as we're turning there, and by the way, in the Bible's just passed out, it's page 964. Um, I want to ask this question to you, and I genuinely want you to think of the answer. So it is rhetorical, but I want you to try to land the plane in your mind, the answer to it. The question is this, what was the longest time you ever spent praying? And I want you to try to recollect that. When in your life did you spend the longest time praying in one sitting? All right, so try to come up with the answer to that in your mind. When you spent the longest time you've ever prayed, when was that? And then I want you to answer this question. Why was that the longest time you ever pray. There's usually something that created that moment as to why you prayed longer there than you might have prayed at any other time. Perhaps it was something that was very serious going on. Maybe there was somebody you cared very much about that was struggling uh, physically, maybe even in a life and death situation, and you're praying long and hard for them. Maybe it was you were thrown a curveball in life a, a, and you lost your job or, or uh, you got a drop in pay and you're th thinking, how am I ever going to survive this? Maybe it is that you were in a place where it got really dark and, and life was, was, was treating you with just a multitude of things and you just got to a place where it's like, God, help me. When I think back to when I began to pray longer uh, to God, it was when I was a sophomore in high school, and after several different tragic events in my life in that sophomore year, I, I got to this place where depression was pretty significant inside of me. Unbeknownst to anybody, I wasn't sharing that with anybody. I don't know that I had classic behaviors where depression was evident, but it was going on nonetheless. And, and I hit this place where I finally just said, okay, God, it's time. I'm going to go all in with you. And, and I began to read my Bible more than just tokenly. I began to read it longer and, and being more intentional about asking myself questions to try to understand it more. But then I began to uh, spend time in prayer. And, and before that, I would say my prayers were just very typical teen-like in that they were short to the point and usually at the dinner table when my dad would ask me, how about you pray? Uh, beyond that, prayers were very few and far between in my personal life. But I began to pray uh, in, in my bed after I'd read the Bible and I found myself you know, about five or ten minutes into my praying to fall asleep. Ever been there? <laughs> Uh, where you're just, you're, you're praying and all of a sudden it's like you hit that, 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 that autopilot and it's just like, ah, and you fall asleep. 
Well, I, I started not liking that pattern of falling asleep while praying. And so I had observed when I'd wake up in the morning and I'd go downstairs that if I was up early enough, I would see my father praying on his knees next to the recliner. And so I thought, well, maybe that would keep me awake. So I began, again, I'm at the end of my sophomore year of high school, I began to pray on my knees next to my bed. And I found that that worked for me. I was able to actually stay awake. And, and initially, my prayers were 10, 15 minutes. But as time went on, I found my prayers growing to 30 minutes and 40 minutes. And, and initially, you know, when I was in that 10 to 15 minute range, I tended to just pray about things that were about me. You know, God this and God that. And, you know, we talked about back in the fall when we were talking through a series on prayer that God wants us to bring all our cares and anxieties upon, uh, to him and cast them upon him so that he can relieve that. But in my prayers, that's where I stayed. It was all about me. It was a very self-centered approach in prayer that was happening. And, and I found that when I was praying long, that what I was praying about shifted. It moved from being just about me to being more about God and asking God, you know, I, I read this and, and I want to understand this about you or, or uh, I see this in you and I would love to have that exemplified in me. And, and then as I'm praying those things, as my heart's beginning to be more in desiring of long, uh, aligning to God's heart, I began to pray for other people. And my prayers began to be more focused there and, and, and praying for some of my friends that I went to school with or, or that I worked with. And, and, uh, and, and it was less self-centered. What I discovered is that the longer I prayed, the more aware of what God was doing around me I was. And then less did my prayers become about me. It became more about other. And I believe that there is a modeling of that in Jesus that we can see in this very brief but important text. Now keep in mind, Luke is writing this letter to Theophilus, and, and he's wanting to make sure that Theophilus, who had studied Scripture, he had been trying to figure out if Jesus is indeed the Messiah— and that he's worthy of giving his life to. So uh, Luke had had some conversations with them clearly. And so he says, so Theophilus, I'm writing this letter to you so that you can be certain. That you can be certain that Jesus is who he says he is. And that he's worthy of the life, your life, to be given to him. And so under that context, Luke is accounting for all these things that happen in Jesus's ministry years. But, you know, he captures some of those younger years, which we taught through over the last few weeks. But now in these ministry years, those three years where he's out doing public ministry, Luke is choosing very carefully which things he puts into the account for Theophilus to be certain as to who Jesus is. What's interesting in the text we're going to read today which we're going to be in verses 12 to 16 of Luke chapter 6. That prior to that, Jesus has had this moment where he's speaking to the teachers of the law and he's confronting them about their legalism and not about having the heart behind the law captured within them. And, and as a result of feeling convicted, you either respond as a teacher of the law being convicted to humbling yourself and submitting to a new pattern or you become angry and defiant. 
Well, they chose anger and defiance because it ends that passage in verse 11 of Luke chapter 6 saying that they began to plot what they might do to Jesus. All right, so that's the context in the first 11 verses of Luke chapter 6. And then you'll find at, in verse 17 and, and going on that Jesus continues his ministry. And it's another ministry moment that is highlighted in verse 17 and beyond. But in these verses, 12 to 16, it's almost as if in the chronology that he's trying to provide here, he wanted to make sure that something didn't get missed in the account about Jesus. Again, this is to help others know with certainty as to who Jesus is and to know what he was about, that these verses right here are not going to be lost, but they are not connected to what's right before and they're not connected to what's after. But yet he found this is so important for you and I to have even 2,000 years later. And what is it? So let's read beginning in verse 12. It says this, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, uh, whom he would then designate as apostles. Simon, who is named Peter, his brother Andrew, James and John, who are brothers, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Which, you got to love that. Uh, it, he gives the whole list of disciples, and then Luke has to add, oh yeah, this, is, this guy's going to turn out to be bad, right? And keep in mind, he's writing this uh, later in the first century. So Jesus has ascended. The church has been established. Paul is preaching everywhere throughout the Roman Empire. And Luke is now writing this letter. Everybody that had been around the church knew the story about Judas Iscariot. But Luke just couldn't let it be that Jesus chose Judas Iscariot. He had to say, oh, that's the traitor. All right. So that's in there. And it's obviously a part of the account. But in this, we need to keep in mind that the context is, is Jesus is about to choose 12 by which he is going to create a world movement that is going to be changing lives for 2,000 years and beyond. We can say that because we're 2,000 years later and it's going beyond, right? So if you are going to establish a movement that is going to last that length of time and it's going to be changing lives all over the world, what would be your strategy? What would you do to create a movement that would sustain for that length of time? In Jesus' case, he chooses 12 men that he is going to invest everything into and then send them out to go and be the message bearers to the rest of the world. And, and then from their message, others will become followers as well, and then so on. And so here it is, 2,000 plus years later, we're sitting here now learning and receiving from these very 12 men. Now Luke is giving this account, and, he's, and he shares something that's really important as part of Jesus' strategy with choosing a group of men that's going to change the world over a 2,000-year period. He begins with prayer, right? So he goes on a mountainside, spends all night long 
praying. Now, in this, we need to understand the magnitude of the decision he's making the next day. So he's choosing a team. He's choosing them from among a group of disciples. Now, disciple, you need to understand the definition of that term because it's going to differentiate from apostle here. A disciple is a learner and a follower, okay? There are learners and followers, all right? And so he, at this time, has minimally 72 followers and learners that are with him that are going on tour, if you will, with Jesus around the Sea of Galilee. And these 12 are observing his behaviors, his attitudes, his spirit, his words, his teaching, his miracles. They're observing it all. And so there was at least 72. And we get that number from later in the book of Luke. So it's a fairly good-sized group of learners and followers. But in the end of verse 13, after he had called all these learners and followers to himself, he chooses 12 and designates them as apostles. Apostles are sent ones, okay? They're sent ones. They, they're going to become the legal messengers of whatever the message will be. And so they're going to go from being learner follower to now being sent ones, so this is the actual decision that is being made here in this moment is that Luke is telling Theophilus there was a point when there was a large group of disciples and then and learners and followers and he's now going to choose 12 of them from out of that group that are going to become the sent ones, the apostles that are going to be the legal messengers of this gospel. Now, as part of the account, he identifies this night of prayer. So it's no small thing. He's got followers. He's got disciples. He's going to be choosing 12 of them to be his primary ambassadors of the message of the gospel. So he spends a night in prayer. Now, if you think about, like, that's minimally about seven hours, maybe nine, ten hours. So somewhere in that span. What did he pray for an entire night leading into a decision to choose 12 apostles, 12 sent ones. Could it be that he was laboring over the decision as to who out of the 72, right? So I got 72 followers, learners. Who should it be? And, and just praying through the list of people. I don't think that was the prayer because we know from John 17 when Jesus is again praying to, uh, the, to the Father God, he acknowledges that the Father God was the one who appointed the 12. So God, the Father, has already appointed who the 12 are going to be. So I, I believe here that it's not about laboring over the decision itself as to who. It was actually probably already known. He knew, again, we know he had foreknowledge. So again, even if by foreknowledge's sake, he knew who the 12 were. So it wasn't a labor of love. Um, on that to see who he would choose. But perhaps one answer could be to what he'd spent the night doing is knowing who the 12 were going to be. That might put him on the knees, on his knees, right? In fact, if you, if you remember in, in the moment that Jesus was, was considering the next day where he's going to be crucified on a cross, he knew what his death was going to be. He knew what the next day held. And what did he pray? He prayed, 
Uh, if you'll pass this cup from me, that would be great. But not my will, your will be done. So perhaps when he's got the assignment, he knows the 72, he's been around them. And he's thinking, you know, God, we've got to change the world for the next 2,000 years and beyond. Are you sure you want to give me that group of 12? But yet, not my will, your will be done. Could that have been the attitude? I mean, think about the 12. In this group, you have four to seven fishermen. Now, we say four to seven because we're not sure on a two or three of them what, <clears throat> what their occupation was before becoming apostles. But they seem to be from a particular, their names suggest that they're from the Galilean area. So it's possible they were fishermen just like James and John and Peter and Andrew. So you've got four to seven fishermen. You have a politician in Simon the Zealot. And, and it's not just any politician. The Zealots were known for stirring up trouble in Israel to be anti-Rome. And so whenever the Zealots would create a ruckus, usually some people died as a result of their leadership because they would stir up trouble. They would try to attack Roman garrisons. So they were not just zealots in a politician kind of way. They were over-the-top zealot type of politicians that they would be willing to create death over a political issue. So four to seven fishermen, you've got a politician who's a zealot, and you have a tax collector who's robbing people and, and, and turning on his very own, and you have a thief and traitor. Because it's found in Scripture that not only did Judas Iscariot you know, betray Jesus, so, but he was also a thief. He would steal from the collections that people would give to support the ministry. So you had a thief and a traitor, a tax collector, a politician, and fishermen. Not the greatest group, if you will, in, in, in creating a profile of likely leaders that are going to create a movement that's going to change the world over a 2,000-year period. But that's what Jesus had to deal with. I don't think that was the issue either. I think Jesus actually beloved the idea that it was the least likely that we're going to be the ones used to change the world. So I don't think it's an issue of who he's got to choose. I don't think it's an issue who God chose. But I do think what was an issue that led to his prayers that night was that he was fully aware of what it was going to cost them and where he was going to be sending them. Because keep in mind, they were going to become sent ones, apostles. They're going to be sent in different places of the world. And it's not any small thing what was going to happen. In fact, each of them was going to pay a heavy price for their assignment. And these 12, each of them was going to be led to God by God to various parts of the world at, at, at a very great peril. And if you even know and understand how Jesus even approached his 12 in the three years he was with them, you'll know that he kept praying for them even while he was with them and the way he was preparing them for success. Consider the moment that's found in Luke chapter 22 when, when Peter is being all Peter-like, when he's being uh, arrogant and cocky and saying, I'll defend you, Jesus. I'm the one that'll stand with you. I, I, you tell me who your adversaries are and I'll take care of it. Jesus' response to him was, Peter, you have no idea. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. 
a process where when you take wheat and, and you rub it together to get all the shaft off of it. And, and, and so what, what, what was basically going on is Satan was asking, I want to shake Peter up to where his faith, his faith might be in peril. But Jesus said to, to Peter in his arrogant moment, Satan has asked to shake you apart. But I have already prayed to the Father God that he will use you powerfully. You see, Jesus understood that these disciples, once assigned and sent to these places, they were going to go and be beaten. They were going to be arrested multiple times. And ultimately, most of them were going to die a martyr's death. If you knew all of that, before you were going to identify them as sent ones, and that by accepting your invitation, it was going to cost them their life. Do you think you would spend time in prayer? You see, I think that after our series that we did on prayer back in the fall, we were encouraging you. God wants you to pray about everything. He wants you to bring everything to him. God wants you to, uh, to not ever stop praying. He wants you to do ceaseless prayers. You go throughout your day. But we were challenging you that in different ways that scripture teaches us to pray, we were saying, take five minutes and pray according to these scriptures that we were speaking to. In this text and what I would say the charge we received from Jesus in this moment is there are times that God wants you to simply pray and pray long. Don't just come and pray and then depart like a popcorn prayer, but pray and stay a while. Consider a special relationship in your life. Husband and wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, fiancés, whatever it may be. If you go through busy seasons, which happens in my marriage, happens in probably most marriages here, where there's busy seasons and conversations get short, there comes a point in time where you need to spend time talking long. Because you have to re-engage each other's hearts. You have to make sure that you know where each other are. Because if you don't take those long times of conversation, you actually become strangers doesn't matter what relationship we're talking about. If you do not have lengthy conversations, your hearts will become strange to each other. It requires engagement. There are seasons of time where, yes, life gets very busy for me, and, and my wife and I aren't having those conversations. And then I realize, like, I haven't talked to my wife in length for several days, and so I become chatty once we got in, get into bed. She's already ready to go to sleep. And so then I start chatting and then I finally get out of words and I'm ready to fall asleep and now I got her wide awake. <laughs> but you know what? We need those moments in time because without them, we would grow strange to each other. The same is true when it comes to God. Is that he wants to engage you at length so that you can know his heart and then know how to pray. In this context, Jesus knows what God's will is. He's choosing these 12. Very specifically, he knew that God was saying, it's going to be these 12. And Jesus also knew specifically where they were going. And he knew specifically the cost. 
As a result, his prayers for these people, which we get again in John 17, there's a lengthy prayer of Jesus that we'll look at here in a minute. But in that prayer, you see that he was very intentional about praying for each of them and praying for those who they were going to minister to and then praying ultimately for the movement of God for the world. But let's go back and let's look very specifically then if Jesus is going to give an entire night of prayer before he simply makes a decision as to who or reveals the decision as to who are the sent ones. Let's appreciate what was actually going to happen. Peter. Peter was going to minister in Jerusalem. And we know that he also ended up in the Turkey area and Asia Minor. And ultimately, it was in Rome where he was crucified upside down. Now, we also know from tradition that, that there are several accounts that before he was crucified upside down, that each of his children were brought before him. And he was given the opportunity to recant against Jesus and spare one of his children's lives. And one by one, they killed his children before his eyes and ultimately his wife. And then finally, Peter was crucified upside down. Peter's brother, Andrew, went to Georgia, Bulgaria, Turkey, and then ultimately Greece, where he too was crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, he's the first one of the 12 that died a martyr's death. In Acts chapter 12, you can actually find the account of his death. So John's brother James die, is the first to die, and he's beheaded by Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod thought it would please the people. And so after, after beheading James, he got emboldened, and that's when he started arresting many of the disciples. And then you can get more of the story of how God miraculously rescues those disciples. John, brother to James, the one that we would say was the one that likely did not die a martyr's death. He ministered in the Hierapolis and Ephesus, so in, in some of those Grecian states. But you need to know this, while he, he did die just due to old age, before he was sent to the island of Patmos to be isolated from everyone else so that he could not share the gospel, he was boiled in hot oil. So he was recovering from deep wounds while on that island. And then God gives him the vision and he's able to write the book of Revelation. Philip. Philip was sent to eastern Turkey and Phrygia. There he was crucified face down. So not upside down, not, not straight up, but face down was how Philip was crucified. Bartholomew. He went to India and Georgia, and there in, in that region of the world, he was crucified upside down, just like Peter was. Matthew. Matthew went to Ethiopia and Egypt and that side of the African uh, continent, and there he was speared to death. Thomas. Remember Thomas, the doubting one, right? What did Thomas say uh, when, when he heard to his, the other apostles saying, we've seen the resurrected Lord? Thomas said, unless I can put my finger in the holes in his hands and put my hand in his side where the spirit pierced Jesus, 
I will not believe. That same doubting Thomas went to Iran, Afghanistan, and India, and there in India, he was speared to death. James, son of Alphaeus, he was primarily ministering around Jerusalem, and it was there that he was stoned to death. That politician that was a zealot, that was against Rome, guess where he ended up? Mauritania, northwest coast of Africa, and then in Great Britain. And on the Britain Isles, he was crucified by the Romans. Judas, son of James, also known as Thaddeus, he went to Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. We do not know the location of his death, but tradition has it that he was clubbed to death. Judas Iscariot, he's the last on the list that Luke mentions. He stole from Jesus. He betrayed Jesus. And he shares the same date of death as Jesus. As he was overcome with his betrayal. And he committed suicide on that very day. He was replaced by a man named Matthias. Not in this text. Luke writes about him in Acts chapter 1 and 2. But you get this story about Matthias. Matthias went to Syria in northern Israel. And there he was burned to death. Matthias was a part of this group of 72 there. But not initially chosen. We know that because in Acts, it teaches us that they chose a replacement for Judas that had been with the Lord from the beginning. So Matthias would have been in this crowd and was later appointed as a sent one. So you're Jesus. And you see these map, this map and you know where all these disciples are going to go. You know they're going to face the deaths that I just spoke of, being clubbed to death burned to death, stoned to death, crucified, speared to death, beheaded. All of them tortured at some point, even before their death, escaping only for another day of more torture. This was going to be the appointment that he was offering. So do you pray long or do you pray short? I think he prayed long. That's why it's in the text. And I believe he was praying because he knew the cost. He knew what they were going to face. He knew that they needed to stay strong in the face of great peril. So in my observations of John 17, where Jesus prayed long and hard on the night that he was going to be betrayed, you learn certain things about the pattern of his lengthy prayer. It is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. First of all, you see that he aligns himself with the heart of God. When he was praying, he, he aligned himself with the heart of God. Secondly, to align yourself with the heart of God, you have to know God's heart, and then you align your own heart to it. And so in this, he prayed to know God's heart, and he also then aligned his heart to it. And then you see he prays for direction. You see that he prays for direction. Because God was calling the shots. The Father God was calling the shots. Jesus was submitting to it. He is following the Father's lead. He knows the Father's heart. He is aligned with the Father's heart. And therefore, he wants to go in that direction, and he goes in that direction. 
But then you see that Jesus prays for all of those that are affected by the ministry of those assignments. He prays long and hard. So as you have difficult decisions in your life, maybe it's something significant on behalf of the family. Maybe you're praying for something that's a career change. Maybe your heart is simply troubled like mine was. Where do you begin when it comes to praying and spending time long with God? I would say I find Jesus' lead to be great. You look for God's heart in the situation. You look for God's heart in the situation. And, and once you know the heart of God and you can see it uh, through the revelation of Scripture and, and the situation around you, then you align to it. And then as you pray for direction, you will clearly know where to go. But more importantly, you conclude those prayers by praying for those that are going to be affected by the decision. It's not about you. It's about all those around you that are going to be affected by the very things you're going to do on God's behalf. So having said that, let me highlight some moments in that John 17 prayer. So if you have your Bibles still open, turn to the right just a little bit to the next book, which is John, and go to the 17th chapter. The context is very simple. This prayer is being prayed in one of two places. It's either being prayed in the upper room when Jesus is going to give them the communion table. It's either being prayed there or it's being prayed en route to the Garden of Gethsemane. I would say it's more likely since we have such a specific recollection of that prayer that it was prayed in the upper room. So put that in mind. What we're about to read in portion was prayed at this table. So he's already told them, this is my body, which is for you. He's already told them this cup represents a new covenant of where this new covenant, you will no longer have to sacrifice animals for a temporary covering of sin, but rather this sacrifice is going to be permanent, a once and for all. So they're already mystified by this moment that has just happened. And then Jesus begins to pray. He begins to pray and he prays long. And he prays, just like I said, in alignment with the Father's heart first. Look at verse 4 where it says, I have brought you glory. It's Jesus speaking to the Father God. I have brought you glory on earth. By finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. There's an alignment going on. You, Father, have set these things in motion. I align myself with you. Then look at verse 11. He begins to pray beyond the alignment, knowing God's heart and aligning his heart with God. Then he begins to pray this. I will remain, Jesus speaking, I will remain in the world no longer. But they, these apostles, are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, so protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Okay, keep in mind, he's just said, I, 
Father, I pray that you protect them. These are the ones you gave me. I pray that you protect them. What kind of protection is he praying for? He's already aware they're going to be beheaded. They're going to be speared. They're going to be burned. They're going to be stoned. They're going to be crucified. What kind of protection is he praying for? Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. He's praying that they will not give up their alignment, their unity with us as the Father and the Son, that they remain aligned to us in spite of being beheaded, speared, tortured, burned, stoned, crucified. So I pray for them that they will protect their hearts and they'll stay the course. And then look what he says in verses 20 and 21. He doesn't just pray for these apostles. He prays for you and I. And it says, Jesus saying, my prayer is not just for these disciples and apostles alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Turkey, Syria, Iran, Afghanistan, Iraq, Phrygia, Asia Minor, Northwest Africa, Britannia, and Rome. I pray for those who will believe through their message wherever they go. In verse 21, so that all of them, those that will believe in this message, all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for those who are being sent and he's praying for those who will receive going forward and praying that we will be aligned with the Father God, knowing the unity of the Father and Son, that we can have unity as the bride of Christ. And then ultimately, verses 25 and 26, he prayed for their mission. In this, it says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Amen. You see, Jesus, when he was praying long, he aligned himself with the Father. And, and knowing the Father's heart, knowing his will, he says, I submit to that. Then he begins to pray for those who are going to be actively involved with the mission. And then he prays for those who will be affected by that mission. And then ultimately, for all of those who will ever hear the message that they will know the love that God, Father God has for his Son and that his Son has for you and I. That is what it means to pray long. It's not about just all the, the turmoil that might be going on in your life that causes you to pray long. But when you get there, and God wants you to bring that turmoil, lay it at his feet. But when you stay there and you stay long, you start quit, you quit asking for God to remove the turmoil. You start looking at it and say, God, what do you want? What's upon your heart? How can I align with it? What would you have me to do? And then ultimately... How can I help others around me? How can you be with them that you would move in their lives? Let's pray. I'm just going to ask those who are going to help serve to come at the
front at this moment. God, I just ask that in this time, we will not lose sight of the fact that in this, at this table was a very lengthy prayer that was prayed on our behalf, prayed on the messenger's behalf, and prayed on Jesus' behalf himself. May our hearts be captivated by this prayer and that we would long to spend time with you so that our hearts do not become strange to you, but rather that we are familiar with your heart because we spend time in prayer. We spend time listening to you through your word and your Holy Spirit. So God, we just give ourselves to you in this moment that you would teach us as we remember again Jesus' sacrifice. That our heart can learn more about your heart that we may align to you and as a result, be used of you in the lives of others. In Jesus' name, I pray. It's not lost upon me that in the moment of his lengthy prayer, he has just taught them something that we're to not forget. That what was going to happen in the next 24 hours was going to be cataclysmic in the history of mankind. It was going to change the dynamic between God and man. So he gives us this table so that we would not forget that moment. And then he prayed. He prayed for the disciples and the apostles, but he also prayed for you and I. So let's take of this table together, being grateful for the prayers of Christ. Pray that night on our behalf. And remember the sacrifice that he's done for us. the bread of life. Let's take in remembrance of all that he did for us while in that body. As shared earlier, when he held up the cup, he said, this is a new covenant. It changes from here forward. And we're under that extended grace that continues way beyond us. And I am so grateful. Are you not? Let's take together being grateful for that act. Jesus, so, so thankful for you. Thankful that you, even now, are advocating on our behalf. You're continuing your prayers over us. And Lord, we want to align our hearts to you. We want to we spend time with you and have the opportunity then to know your heart so that we can pray according to your heart and then be burdened the way you're burdened and praying for those around us. So God, help us to then capture the heart of your son as I just prayed to him. I say thank you for your mission that you gave. We, we accept that calling too. In the name of your son, Jesus, who you said. Amen. Super Sunday is not what began today or 53 years ago. Super Sunday was a day when that grave was broken open. And it's found empty by people that did not even expect it, even though it was told to them. Let us not be caught off guard by what God may do in your life. So go, spend time with him, stay long. Don't keep it short. Get to know his heart. 
If you would like to pray with someone this morning, we'll have people underneath the cross that would be glad to pray with you. But otherwise, you, wherever you go, you have access to the Father God, and he welcomes you. Amen. You're dismissed.